0: Hello, oh, and welcome to the reading of the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier for Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024. I'm your reader, Mary Francis, and you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Looking at the front page of this morning's Courier, we have a large photo, and the headline is, Laudick Takes the Reins." then the second article on the front page is, Nursing Homes Invest in Campaigns, Comma, Reap Taxpayer Money. And we'll start with the um, big article. It shows Danny Laudick, the newly elected mayor of Cedar Falls, um, will be sworn in today at the city's inauguration ceremony. And he is standing in front of a mural that says, Greetings from Cedar Falls. New mayor will focus on alignment, College Hill development in first year. This is from Andy Malone. Getting the city's elected officials and professional staff on the same page will be a big focus for Danny Laudick during his first year as mayor beginning Tuesday. His confident alignment, quote-unquote, will be attained through better communication. The result will be a clearer vision of priorities and big initiatives the city wants to embark on in years to come. Meanwhile, Laudick expects decisions will be made on several big-ticket items in 2024. We have a lot of things happening. And we don't want to pause anything to do this planning, he said. We have a lot going on with the park's master plan coming up this year. The river redevelopment. We're working on the College Hill vision plan. We're still going to keep doing those things and moving forward. It's just at the same time, we should also be prioritizing coming up with what's the actual strategy. Other decisions will likely be made with, about housing and parking downtown. Laudick also plans to focus on quality of life issues, quote, we need to emphasize and be better at investing in the arts, culture, tourism, recreation, and economic development in the community. Those are just the things that bring in new tax base, keep us financially sound and good jobs and all that, unquote. Laudick was elected to a two-year term in November, replacing Rob Green, the four-year mayor and former council member who did not seek re-election. Laudick, the outgoing executive director of Red Cedar, a startup catalyst, previously had roles in community development. He was the director of talent development from 2014 to 2017 and senior program director of economic development from 2021 to 2022 for Grow Cedar Valley. His background is welcome, according to former council member Nicholas Tabor, one of his supporters, who noted that he's a, quote, consensus builder, who's able to, quote, rally people around a common goal. He's super well-rounded when it comes to economic development, but which should not, what shouldn't be forgotten is his support for quality of life and wanting to create a city where a lot of people want to live, Tabor said. Everyone needs to be on the same page to have a successful city. Laudick has met with city staff and talked with all the council members one-on-one and intends to continue to do so. He feels there's not been enough communication between council members and staff in the past and plans to act as a liaison to ensure that they're in sync. Quote, there's not a good sense of alignment between council and then what council wants to see and what staff is working on, he said. It's not like we're completely off track. It's like a car. You could have the fastest car in the world, but if your engine is misfiring, you're not going to go very fast. He wants to develop a process for strategic planning with the council and then make sure staff is working to, quote, fit within that. His first week might include developing a task force of council members and top city administrators to start assembling that process. Laudick says College Hill has been the victim of that lack of alignment. Resources were spent on a vision plan adopted in 2021, but there's been little agreement about what the city is trying to accomplish. Quote, because we did not agree upon the intent of it and what we wanted to accomplish we just put it on the shelf for two and a half years i think we've struggled to really get any large meaningful initiatives going because of that lack of alignment he said the council re- rescinded the plan in a 4 to 3 vote in recent months green voted that vetoed that action rather but the council overrode the veto with a supermajority The new mayor plans on having informal work sessions in a conference room to dig into topics like College Hill and reach a consensus on what can be implemented. The idea is to make council members more comfortable with discussion and without worries of having to take formal action. He expects the first one to focus on the area January 16th. Quote, you can just tell talking to all the council members, everyone wants actual time to sit down and work together at a table, because you can't really have a good constructive conversation at the dais, especially when you're on camera and it's televised, he said. He's heard from council members who think a shift should be made to the mayor chairing these sessions and future committee meetings as the quarterback, quote-unquote. He can help coordinate stuff and then get them information and work with them on things. Danny has had an interest in the community since a young age when he was a volunteer as a UNI student, said Sue Beach, one of his supporters and a former director of the local American Red Cross chapter where she first met him. That's grown over time, she said. She feels the job of mayor is a perfect fit, and he's, quote, doing it for the right reasons with the community in mind, unquote. Listening is a strength of his, she said. Laudick agrees, with a caveat. I seem like a pushover at first because I actually try to listen and I don't jump to conclusions. But once people start to know me a while, they realize I'm incredibly stubborn, he said. And if I'm looking to go in a direction, I still listen, but I have no hesitation to make the changes that need to be made. Because for me, at the end of the day, the goal is to improve the well-being of the community with what residents want to see, unquote. There's two ways to lead in his mind, through relationships or policy. He chooses the former and thinks that and thinks that, that brings cohesion. He'll have the power to veto anything passed by the council, but that's a last resort. A veto is really, if we haven't been able to work it out through any other means of communication, work sessions, then there's always that tool, he said. He's chosen first-term council member Chris Lotta to be the mayor pro tem. A decision he made, quote, after looking at where the relationships have been with the council and keeping in mind that, quote, we have a lot of trust to rebuild. I really like the way he approaches things. He's very objective. He wants to focus on what makes sense, Laudick said. He's very sociable. He gets along with people and he doesn't mind saying if he respectfully disagrees. Laudick will have big decisions to make when it comes to appointments. There are two open spots on the Planning and Zoning Commission. He'll generally keep the same process and involve multiple people, like his predecessor, but will be more active during discussions. As far as city staff, he won't rule out personnel changes at some point, but emphasized that he's not bringing in, quote, his own people. He believes in the people in place, but thinks responsibilities need to be better defined to help with evaluations. I've had some people say there are certain people who need to be fired, My answer has always been, have we held those people accountable to specific measurables, actions, and performance reviews? Doesn't sound like, from a council standpoint, that we've done a good job of setting clear direction and clear accountability for what we're working toward, he said. When Green took the helm four years, uh, when Green took the helm four FOUR years, I think that this should be in a go in there, the controversial transition to cross-trained public safety officers in fire and police response dominated the conversation. The council and Green did not advance any significant changes. Does this mean that the conversation is dead at this point? Quote, I think there's still trust to rebuild. That's the big thing I heard when I was campaigning, he said. People want to know and see that the city is listening, that we're measuring what's being done and we're going to be accountable with safety and making sure it's there." Unquote. Other items. Laudic expects to gain clarity throughout the year on other aspects of the city, largely outside its control, ranging from the College Square corridor to the future of the annual Sturgis Falls Celebration. The mall is privately owned. A private nonprofit organizes Sturgis, but almost the entire board stepped aside in November and the Overman Park events were put on hold. He's hoping for a positive update soon. Additionally, Laudick wants to be more intentional in partnerships with entities like the University of Northern Iowa and Grow Cedar Valley, and generally expand its means of communication. Quote, Danny will be that fresh face we need at City Hall, said John Benton. Benton is one of his supporters and the owner of Benton's Sand and Gravel. He continues, Danny seems to be big on communication, and that seems to maybe be a lost art between politicians and constituents. He'll hope to better inform by clarifying other cloudy situations. Mercy One plans to build a new hospital at some point, and the school district may vacate its administration building. And other exciting projects may come up, he added, like a city fireworks display, maybe during Sturgis. Our next article from the front page, Nursing Homes, in Campaigns, and Reap Taxpayer Money. It was early on a Monday afternoon in September 2022. Governor Kim Reynolds was at the Marriott Hotel in downtown Des Moines, delivering a speech to a group of nursing home executives gathered for their annual convention. It was a friendly and receptive audience, as evidenced by the donations the Reynolds campaign had collected in the previous four weeks from some of those in attendance. The Political Action Committee that represents Iowa's nursing home industry had donated $30,000 to Reynolds' 2022 reelection effort. David Chensvold, nursing home consultant and president of Healthcare of Iowa, gave $20,000. Ted Leneve, CEO of Acura Healthcare, gave $10,000. As did Lisa Todi, president of Acura Healthcare. Richard Albee, CEO of the ABCM nursing home chain, gave $5,000, as did Douglas Johnson, who is CEO of Bluestone Therapy. In her prepared remarks, Reynolds reminded industry officials of her efforts to loosen regulatory barriers and shield the companies from legal liability, resulting from wrongful death claims and other lawsuits. She also spoke of her successful efforts to Increase Medicaid funding for the industry by $23 million in 2019, and again by $19 million in 2021. Quote, you're not getting much help from the federal government, which apparently has never seen something it doesn't like to regulate or mandate, she said. I can't control Washington's approach, but I can promise this. In Iowa, you'll continue to get the support you're being denied in Washington, unquote. The same day Reynolds spoke, a group of state lawmakers assembled on the stage at the Marriott and posed with plaques in appreciation of their efforts on behalf of the industry during the 2022 legislative session. Standing shoulder to shoulder were seven legislators, all Republicans like the governor. They were Speaker of the House Pat Grassley, Senate President Jake Chapman, House Majority Leader Matt Winshittle, Representative Joel Fry. Representative Ann Meyer, Senator Tim Crianbrink, and Senator Mark Costello. An Iowa Capital Dispatch review of legislation, campaign contributions, federal tax returns, inspection reports, and audio recordings of industry lobbyists reveals the extent to which money influences critical public policy decisions related to the protection of Iowa's elderly and people with disabilities. The rec- records document the flow of money from state-regulated care facilities, through a political action committee, and into the campaign coffers of state lawmakers who have advanced bills to protect nursing homes, while scuttling legislation intended to help elderly Iowans. The appearance of the governor and state lawmakers at the 2022 convention of the Iowa Healthcare Association wasn't unusual. Reynolds and legislative leaders of both parties routinely appear at the annual gathering, And while state officials often walk away with awards or plaques, the state spends taxpayer money giving the industry its own awards. September 2021, for example, the state bestowed the Governor's Award for Quality Care to Acura Healthcare's nursing home in Stanton. Two months after that award was announced, state inspectors cited the home for placing residents in immediate jeopardy. The inspectors allege the home had a defective door alarm that enabled a resident of the home to leave the facility, walk about a third of a mile, and cross a busy street before being spotted by someone in the neighborhood. According to data from Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the Acura chain operates 32 facilities with an average overall rating of 2.5 stars on the agency's five-star scale. The chain has been hit with more than 1.1 1.1 million dollars in fines for quality of care violations that have put elderly residents at risk and regulators have suspended medicaid payments to various acura facilities at least 11 times lenive the acura ceo donated ten thousand dollars to reynolds campaign shortly before her 2022 convention speech state records show that since 2018 He's donated a total of $47,000 to Reynolds' campaign coffers and given $61,000 to the campaign committees of former Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitford, Whitford rather, who is an Ankeny Republican. Leneve has also contributed $83,779 to Iowa Health PAC, which is the Political Action Committee of IHCA, through which most of the industry's political donations pass. According to state records, Iowa Health PAC is one of the state's biggest contributors to political campaigns, spending a total of $1,493,612 on campaign donations and related expenses since 2016. Reynolds' campaigns collected $132,785 of that amount which is more than she received from other major Iowa PACs, such as those representing Farm Bureau, building contractors, banks, realtors, and gun owners. Between 2010 and 2016, Iowa Health PAC donated $155,288 to Reynolds' mentor and predecessor as governor. Terry Brand said, Stead, who had campaigned on a pledge to end what he called the gotcha approach to nursing home inspections. Quote, I have had a close and good relation with nursing home people for a long period of time, Branstead told the Des Moines Register in 2016. He continued, I meet with them on a regular basis. According to a U.S. Senate report, Iowa now ranks 49th among the states in its ratio of state inspectors to nursing homes. For every inspector that Iowa has on staff, it has nine care facilities to oversee. By comparison, Kansas and Nebraska each have 5.7 facilities per inspector. Missouri has 2.7 and Illinois has 2.2. When asked about the governor's acceptance of the PAC donations, spokesman Colin Crompton said Reynolds, quote, Cares deeply about older Iowans and the care they receive, which is why she works closely with the healthcare industry, organizations, and providers to support a quality, safe, and affordable long term care system for Iowa families. Unquote. He said Reynolds has addressed the healthcare workforce shortage by investing $20 million in apprenticeship programs, while investing more than $4 million in a program to recruit doctors and other healthcare professionals to rural Iowa. Brent Willett, who is the head of IHCA and the PAC, declined to comment on the organization's lobbying and campaign contributions. But in a recorded conference call with IHCA members, largely nursing home owners and administrators, at the end of the 2023 legislative session, Willett reminded them the decision-makers of the 2024 session would soon be running again for elected office. He pointed out the PAC... Uh, was responsible for having just secured an additional $164 million in state and federal tax dollars for Iowa nursing homes. Quote, What does the impact of a total of $164 million of new Medicaid funding mean for your business? And what does it mean for your career? Because those are personal dollars, he said. Consider that when you consider supporting this campaign. John Hale, who is a consultant and advocate for older Iowans, Says the nursing home industry, quote, plays the influence game as well as anyone. They may get big campaign contributions, give out nice awards, and regularly hobnob with elected officials to get what they want. Which is $800 million taxpayer dollars flowing to nursing home operators and owners annually with no expectation for how the dollars are used and no questions are asked about what they accomplish, unquote. Hale said, The compensation of IHCA officials and top industry executives in Iowa is scandalous, particularly particularly in light of the low wages paid to frontline caregivers that are in such short supply. According to tax records, the IHCA paid Willett a $732,275 salary in 2022. That reflected a 50% raise from his previous year's salary. Michael Beal, the head of the Iowa-based nonprofit nursing home chain Care Initiatives, was paid $608,638 in 2021, according to tax records. At the Iowa Capitol, money buys influence, Hale said. The system is corrupt and broken. Quote, It's a shame that so-called advocates would rather publicly politicize issues than present solutions that are in the best interests of Iowans, Compton said. He added that any assertion that the governor's actions are motivated by campaign donations is absurd. Willett, the man who helped steer those donations to Reynolds, might disagree. In one of his recorded meetings with IHCA members, he credited the PAC as, quote, the thing that keeps us successful, and said that the grassroots advocacy of individual members would not work without a strong political operation. It is the strength of of the Iowa Health PAC, which has allowed us to continue to be at the table and not on the menu at the Statehouse, Willett told the IHCA members before soliciting them for donations. Dean Lerner, who headed the State Inspections Agency under a Democratic administration, has long complained that the money the industry spends lobbying state legislators originates with taxpayers. Nursing homes, he says, collect most of their money from medicaid and then pay the iowa healthcare association 2.3 million dollars in annual dues the association in turn pays its ceo and lobbyists a combined total of 1.2 million dollars annually the ihca learner says is quote one of the most powerful lobbying organizations in iowa it has two objectives more taxpayer dollars and less government oversight unquote Although the Governor's Award for Quality Care might appear to be a benevolent gesture on the part of Reynolds' office, it's actually a requirement of state law. State legislators have mandated that the Iowa Department of Inspections, Appeals, and Licensing, the same agency that inspects and regulates nursing homes, hand out at least one such award annually to a facility that, quote, demonstrates provision of the highest quality care to older islands. Over the years, that's proven to be difficult at times, with the award going to care facilities that were recently cited for widespread unsanitary conditions or a basic failure to meet its residents' nutritional needs. In some cases, the homes are cited for violations shortly after the Governor's Award is given. On other occasions, the awards are given to homes run by companies with a long history of violations and an equally long history of donating money to legislators. Six months ago, Larry Johnson, the director of the State Inspections Agency, bestowed the Governor's Award for Quality Care on LaPorte City Specialty Care in Blackhawk County. This is a great facility, Johnson said in a press release announcing the honor. The release stated that, quote, the cozy fireplace and sitting area at the front entrance of this lodge style facility immediately impressed dial staff who toured the facility unquote. just six months earlier state inspectors working for Johnson's agency had cited the Laporte home for failing to provide a clean home like environment failing to accurately assess and report residents needs and failing to provide timely plans of care for residents the inspectors noted one out of the four bathrooms that they checked had smeared brown substance on the walls, floor, and baseboard. A housekeeper informed the inspectors that there was no supervisor at the 44 resident facility. Quote, I'm the only housekeeper in the building today, she said. The toilets should be cleaned every day, and I would say they're not getting done every day, but maybe every other day, Unquote. The owner of the LaPorte City facility is Care Initiatives. That's the West Des Moines Corporation, whose workers have been implicated in several alleged cases of death by neglect. In 2004, Care Initiatives was one of the few nursing home corporations to face a criminal investigation tied to resident care. The corporation agreed to pay the federal government $500,000 to settle the allegations against it, but two of its nurses and one regional director named Larry Hinman were indicted after being accused of conspiring to hide resident injuries from state inspectors. In 2005, the criminal charges were dropped after the three completed a pre-trial diversion program. Other winners of this Governor's Award for Quality Care include the Bridges at Ankeny, September 22, 2022. This care facility received the Governor's Award. Six weeks later, they were cited for failing to notify the state's long-term care ombudsman of resident transfers, failing to accurately complete assessments of residents' conditions, and failure to store and serve food in accordance with food safety standards. The next is Newton Village. August of 2022, this Jasper County facility won the award. Reynolds announced that, quote, Newton Village goes above and beyond to give its residents the quality care they need, unquote. One year later, Inspectors cited the home for failing to have a trained, qualified infection control specialist on staff, failing to adequately treat pressure sores, and failing to ensure residents were up-to-date on immunizations. Next is Lake Mills Care Center. October of 2021, this Winnebago County home received the Governor's Award. Two months later, inspectors cited the home for inadequate incontinence care with the staff indicating that they performed no competency checks on the nurse aides the home was also cited for failing to review a resident's medication for 5 months care initiatives has care initiatives rather has made no direct political donation to candidates in iowa that's not surprising since political candidates can accept contributions from individuals but are barred from accepting contributions from corporations. However, the top executives at CARE Initiatives have made direct and indirect contributions to the campaign coffers of state house leaders and the governor, with most of that money routed through the Iowa Health PAC. State campaign finance reports suggest some form of coordination among the executives. The donations tend to be made on the same day, and they also tend to fluctuate up or down at the same time. In addition, multiple executives appear to be consolidating their donations, with numerous, quote, individual donations delivered through a single transfer of funds to the PAC. For example, September 8 of 2022, Iowa Health PAC received several individual donations from Care Initiatives employees, but all of the donations were collected by the PAC via check number 490139, suggesting a single electronic transfer of bundled donations. When asked whether the PAC donations attributed to individual executives um, are being coordinated, bundled, or paid by CARE initiatives, Vice President and Spokesperson Jessica McDyer said that, quote, any decision by a CARE initiatives team member to make a political contribution is a personal and individual choice. A decision whether to contribute as well as the amount of any contribution is within the sole discretion of such a team member. Many team members, including some members of the senior leadership team, have chosen to contribute to the Iowa Health Pack in support of the overall long term care profession in Iowa. Unquote. Care initiatives executives who have donated include, in the NERSA bullet list, Michael Beal, CEO, in 2022-23, 20, he donated 8190 to Iowa Health PAC, plus 1000 to the Reynolds campaign, plus 250 each um, to the campaigns of Republican State House Leader Pat Grassley and Jack Whitfer. Dave Dixon, CFO, he donated 10725 to Iowa Health PAC over the past two years plus 1000 to Reynolds' campaign and 250 to both Grassley and Whitford's campaigns. Next, Jeremy Kuhn, Chief Compliance Officer. Kuhn donated $2,145 to Iowa Health PAC in the past two years. He's been making donations to the PAC since 2012. He averages one donation per month. Joseph Reese, Chief Operating Officer, donated $2,800 to the PAC in 2022 23 The executives' PAC donations and campaign contributions pale in comparison to the amount of money that CARE Initiatives as a corporation has given to the IHCA, the industry's main statehouse lobbyist. In 2021, CARE Initiatives reported spending $204,000 on IHCA membership dues, plus another $59,000 on dues for the IHCA's parent organization. During the 2023 legislative session, IHCA lobbyist Maria b Bentrot, B-E-N-T-R-O-T-T, gave Iowa's nursing home owners weekly updates via Zoom on the status of various bills in the House and the Senate. The audio portion of the updates, which was recorded by IHCA and posted to the organization's website, sheds considerable light on the industry's efforts to kill legislation that would have prevented nursing homes from refusing to let the families of residents put surveillance-style cameras, um, sometimes called granny cams, in the rooms of their loved ones. Other states have approved such legislation, but IHCA has repeatedly and successfully fought advocates such as Diane Hathaway of Glenwood on the issue. Hathaway's mother, Evelyn, was living in a nursing home when she was twice hospitalized for severe dehydration, bed sores, and an infection. Although state inspectors would later determine that Hathaway's complaints about the nursing home were valid, citing the facility for five regulatory violations, the home had refused Hathaway's request to place a camera in her mother's room. After her mother died, Hathaway launched a campaign to win approval of legislation that would prevent care facilities from barring the use of cameras. Quote, I just don't understand how people can turn a blind eye to this, she said after the legislation stalled in 2022. But I'm just one person. I can't fight these lobbyists. In her Zoom call with IHCA members this year, Bentrote said she was locked, loaded, and ready to go in imposing, in opposing rather, the newly resurfaced legislation early in the 2023 session. As things turned out, legislators did not put up much of a fight. This is something we've opposed for many, many years, she told IHCA members. She said she and her colleagues were asked to come up with their own version of a bill that would be acceptable to the industry, but she was able to persuade a committee chairman to spike the bill and prevent it from moving forward. Quote, I'm happy to say that yesterday we were able to kill that legislation, she said in the conference call. That is good news. That was on the House side of things. The bill never had legs in the Senate. We talked to them very early on, and we were able to get them to a point where they agreed that camera legislation was not something that they would make an issue this year. So we were confident we would be able to kill the bill in the Senate, but we didn't even want it to get a subcommittee in the House, and we were successful in preventing that from happening. So that is a big win, unquote. During a subsequent Zoom call, She warned that the IHCA members, she warned them that the camera legislation would likely come up again in the future. This is something that will probably come up every single year, she said. Best case scenario is that we kill it before it even gets any likes. And last February, in another of the recorded conference calls with lobbyists and IHCA members, an association administrator, identified only as Lori on the recording, and believed to be Lori Ristow, who was then an IHCA vice president, discussed the organization's latest attempts to connect with state lawmakers and influence their votes. And that article was from the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. Um, The writer was Clark Kaufman. And we're a little bit beyond the halfway point of today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024. Happy New Year. I'm your reader, Mary Francis, and you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. And now we'll take a look at obituaries. Gail A. Adelmund, that's A-D-E-L-M-U-N-D, um, age 84, of Waterloo, died Tuesday, December 19th, at the Cedar Valley Hospice Home in Waterloo. Services, uh, visitation, okay, we'll start with services, will be Saturday the 6th at the Orchard Hill Church starting at 11 a.m. Visitation will be held at that same church starting at 9.30 prior to Gail's service. Memorial contributions in Gail's honor may be directed to the Cedar Valley Hospice House. Dahl Funeral Home is handling the arrangements. Ronald Lee McCampbell, uh, also known as Mac, age 80, died Friday, December 22nd at the Western Home Communities. Um, Celebration of Life will take place on February 10th in Cedar Falls. Uh, Memorials may be directed to the Veterans Home in Waterloo. Services are being handled by the Richardson Funeral Service. And George Selk, that's S-E-L-K, age 87 of Treyer, passed away December 19th. Memorial service will be held some at some day in April 2024, yet to be determined. Overton Funeral Home is in charge of those arrangements. And then looking at the opinion page today, the uh, political cartoon it shows. Uh, Uncle Sam uh, is holding up a large piece of paper and looking at it. The headline is 2024 mass shootings and it's blank. Um, And then laying next to him is a giant piece of paper that shows 2023 mass shootings and has multiple uh, hash marks on it. And he's torn that page off and is now looking at the 2024 mass shootings page. Then across the bottom of the cartoon, it shows piles of guns and lots of post-it notes that say thoughts and prayers. Um, our opinion today, the first one is from another view from the Washington Post. And this one's titled, The Dementia Crisis Is Here Needs Training. Assisted living staff are often overworked Poorly paid, miss medicine, and ignore alarms. The number of Americans over the age of 65 is rising quickly. In the past century, it's grown at nearly five times the rate of the rest of the population and is now approaching 60 million people. That includes about 15.5 million added since 2010. That's good news for the widening community of people who are enjoying their happy, healthy golden years. And yet, a rise in older Americans also means a rise in Alzheimer's and other disease and also forms of dementia. More families are struggling with the challenge of caring for them. Recent years have brought a substantial increase in people with dementia residing in assisted living homes. As a Washington Post investigative series has revealed in appalling detail, these centers aren't always equipped to provide the special care that people with dementia need. To be sure, to be sure, rather, assisted living centers were not created as homes for people with dementia or any other serious health problems. Back in the 80s, when the assisted living concept began, the expectation was that ill elderly went to nursing homes. Assisted living centers were for older people who could manage independently. As the over 65 demographic has ballooned, however, The number of people experiencing dementia has risen, too, to about 7 million as of 2020. The figure could approach 12 million by 2040. Inevitably, people with dementia have become much more prevalent in assisted living centers. About a third of assisted living residents have dementia, according to the Alzheimer's Association. Many are in memory care units, but more can be found in the general assisted living population some are just beginning to experience troubling symptoms and too often assisted living cannot provide the special attention they need the post reporters found many instances in which assisted living staff members often overworked and poorly paid neglected patients missed giving them their medicines skipped scheduled bed checks or ignored alarms far worse they found that in the past five years Some 2,000 residents had been able to walk away from assisted living homes or were left unattended outdoors. This problem, which threatens to worsen, is already widespread enough to call for system-wide solutions. States should require minimum staff levels according to the patient population size, and only 13 states have such rules. More importantly, assisted living staff need to be trained to understand dementia, including the disorientation, confusion, and behavioral changes that it causes, and to work compassionately with residents who have it. The search for a cure will lead results over the long term, in the here and now, and there is great urgency to helping the millions already diagnosed with dementia thrive. Society should be equally devoted to ensuring that they get the care protection, and respect that they need. And that was another view from the Washington Post. And I'm going to kick back over to some local news. One arrested after motel search finds guns and drugs. This is from uh, Jeff Reinitz of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. A Waterloo man has been arrested after police found a gun and marijuana in his motel room on Wednesday. Officers with the Waterloo de- Police Department's Violent Crime Apprehension Team executed a search warrant at the Motel Six on LaPorte Road, and they found a backpack with a loaded 22-caliber Smith and Wesson AR-style rifle, according to court records. Police also found marijuana in the backpack and under a mattress, and $1,900 in cash. Jaless Uriah Thomas, aged 19, was arrested for felony possession or felon in possession, rather of a firearm and possession of marijuana with intent to deliver bond was said at $10,000. The rest comes months after Thomas was granted a deferred judgment with probation in connection with an April 12th incident where police found marijuana while investigating a shooting that injured two teens outside his home at 500 Reed street. And, Here's one. Judge Temporarily Halt's New Iowa Law. Law deals with bans of school books teaching about gender identity. This is from Erin Murphy of The Courier. Calling it incredibly broad and wildly overbroad, a federal judge on Friday temporarily halted the implementation of most of a new Iowa state law That bans school books and curriculum with depictions of sex acts and prohibits the teaching of gender identity and sexual orientation through sixth grade. The ruling means most of the new law cannot be enforced while the federal courts continue to hear legal challenges to its constitutionality. Judge Stephen H. Locker, that's L O C H E R, of the U.S. District Court in Iowa's Southern District in a ruling on Friday, halted parts of the law that prohibit books and curriculum with depictions of sex acts as well as the prohibition on teaching gender identity or sexual orientation through 6th grade. Quote, The sweeping restrictions in Senate File 496 are unlikely to satisfy the First Amendment under any standard of scrutiny and thus may may not be enforced. While the case is pending, unquote, Locker wrote. Locker left in place the portion of the law that requires parents to or requires educators rather to notify parents when a student asks to be called by different pronouns. Locker said the plaintiffs in the case lacked legal standing. As the plaintiffs involved are already publicly LGBTQ, that portion of the law does not apply to them, Locker ruled. The new law was approved by only one Republican state lawmaker, or pardon me, the new law was approved by only Republican state lawmakers and was signed into law by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds. It went into effect on July 1. Hundreds of books have been removed from my own schools as districts moved to comply with the new law. The law's enforcement measures, including possible disciplinary action for educators, were set to go into effect on Monday. On the grounds that it violates their First Amendment rights to free speech, the new state law is being challenged by the ACLU of Iowa, publishing company Penguin Random House Publishing, 16 LGBTQ students in Iowa, the LGBTQ advocacy organization uh, Iowa Safe Schools, and the Iowa State Education Association Teachers Union. Locker heard from attorneys representing the plaintiffs and the state during a three-hour hearing that took place on December 22nd. Our next article, Downtown Waterloo CVS Closing at the End of January. A downtown pharmacy is shutting its doors at the end of January. The CVS at 205 Franklin will close on January 31st. Customers' prescriptions will be transferred to the location at 1825 East San Marnon Drive. The Cedar Falls location at 2302 West 1st Street will remain open as well as the pharmacy inside the Waterloo Target. The company also offers prescription home delivery services. Management at the store said they could not talk to members of the media and redirected the courier to speak to a corporate spokesperson. The company's retail communications manager said the closure was, quote, a difficult decision, in an emailed statement. Quote, maintaining access to pharmacy services in the communities we serve is an important factor we consider when making store closure decisions, said Matt Blanchett. He continues, other factors include local market dynamics, population shifts, a community's store density and ensuring that there are other geographic access points to meet the needs of the community. Once the store closes, the nearest retail pharmacy will be 1.7 miles away at the Walgreens or Hy-Vee on Logan Avenue. People's Clinic Pharmacy is just over half a mile away from the current CVS location, but only patients of the clinic can use that pharmacy. An October article from CNN said that in 2021, CVS announced plans to close 900 stores by 2024. The press release stated that all employees at the Franklin Street location are being offered comparable roles within the company. Some more business news. Cork's Grocery has closed after 40 years in Waterloo. The distinctive green and white building has graced the corner of Lafayette and State Streets for more than four decades. Friday was its last day in business. We sign the papers next Friday, said retiring owner Chris Corcoran of the sale of the site. Customers, vendors, and past employees have been paying their respects all week. Some are crying and I have to give them a Kleenex, Corcoran said, flashing her ever-present smile. And some are complaining at me because I'm selling it. I've had people coming in and calling all week. Some started coming when they were kids, and now they bring their kids in. They want to share the memories. Corcoran and her husband, Carrie, who passed in 2018, opened the market in May of 1982. Then, Christine worked as a bookkeeper, and Carrie worked for Frito-Lay. We thought he would run the store, but he couldn't give up the paycheck. He was a good salesman. So he stayed at Frito Lay and I got the store. And here I still am. Carrie's brother, Chuck Corcoran, has been by her side the entire time. He started with us when we opened, she said. He was 19 years old at the time. Chuck is also retiring. He might look for something part time because he doesn't know what to do in the winter. He knows what to do in the summer. He likes to fish. We have an acreage with dogs and horses. When you work for the public for so long, it's nice to have a place to get away. Closing the store has been hard for Chuck. He can't talk about it, she said. He gets too emotional. The building was 40 by 40 square feet when we bought it, Corcoran said. In the late 1990s, we put on an addition, and it's always been green because my husband was an Irishman. The compact building boasts neatly organized shelves, a long counter, and a popular deli. We are known for our Fat Daddy sandwich, she said. It has everything imaginable on it. Thoughts of her husband are laced throughout her memories of the store. He really liked the children, she said. Some would bring in their report cards to show him, and he would give them a treat. There are some who said they would never have made it through school without his encouragement. Kylie Petty of Waterloo has worked at Cork's off and on since she was 16. She still comes in part-time, decades later. It's a sad day, she said, wiping tears from her eyes. I would always come back when they needed help. I come back for the customers and for Chuck and Heather Tompkins, who has worked here for 23 years. They're just good people. Will Mohammed, Muhammad has been a Cork's customer for close to 20 years. It's the environment, how they treat you, he said, of his reasons for becoming a regular customer. They make you want to come back. That's not the case in most places. I will miss them. But the long days have taken their toll. I haven't had a vacation since 1986, she said. My mother watched the store. She said it was harder than working at Rath for 44 years. She said she'd never do it again. Christine will soon undergo shoulder surgery. That's from sacking groceries for 40 years, she said family members joined Christine and Chuck Friday night, as they closed up for the last time. My sister is coming. She was up here, or she was here on the day that we opened, and she'll be here on the night that we close. According to Corcoran, the owners of Ray's Supermarket will purchase the building, but she doesn't know what their plans are. They purchased all of my sandwich recipes, so I assume they will be keeping the deli, she said. All the inventory will stay, It will be easy to open it right back up again. None of the nine Corks employees were offered positions by the new owner. Most of them have already found something else, she said. And time for a little lighter news. Waterloo named American World War II Heritage City. It's the only Iowa city honored with the National Park Service designation. And it shows a photo of one of the statues at the Sullivan Brothers Iowa Veterans Museum. This is from the Courier staff. Waterloo is one of 11 cities across the U.S. designated as an American World War II Heritage City, the National Park Service announced on Friday. The American World War II Heritage Heritage Cities Program honors the contributions of towns, cities, counties, and their citizens who stepped into the workforce to support America's war effort during World War II. Only one American World War II heritage city can be designated in each state or territory. Quote, Waterloo's contributions on the home front as well as in the field to the World War II Allied Forces victory is a perfect example for why this national designation was envisioned, said Tim Hurley, former Waterloo mayor who helped lead the charge for the designation. I've learned so much about what our Waterloo soldiers, sailors, Marines, and citizens did to help win the war. We should be very proud of our World War II history, and that we are the only city in Iowa to earn this honor from the National Park Service. Submitted last fall, the city's application for consideration included a letter from Mayor Quentin Hart that elevated, or excuse me, that highlighted extensive World War II preservation efforts. Today, our community supports the Iowa Veterans Museum, Sullivan Park and Sullivan Plaza, which is a lighted and also a lighted patriotic Veterans Way, service member banner program, celebrations and remembrances and memorials, all of which showcase the veneration we have for veterans, the letter states. U.S. Senators Chuck Grassley and Joni Ernst supported the application as well as retired U.S. Army Major General Evan Holtman, who served in World War II, and his daughter, Heidi Holtman Warrington, who was a retired colonel in the U.S. Army Nurse Corps. Other letters of support came from Yolanda Loveless, Black Hawk County Veterans Affairs Director, Affairs Director, and Kelly Sullivan, granddaughter of Albert Sullivan, one of the five Sullivan brothers. The Sullivan brothers stand as a symbol for all veterans in the community. November 13, 1942, the USS Juno was destroyed in the South Pacific, resulting in the death of 700 sailors, including all five brothers. It was the largest single family combat loss in American military history. The other 10 newly designated communities are Foley, Alabama, Tempe, Arizona, Richmond, California, Wilmington, Delaware, Baltimore County, Maryland, Johnson County and Warrensburg, Missouri, Hastings, Nebraska, Boulder City and Henderson, Nevada, Yonkers, New York, and Bedford County, Virginia. And that's all the time we have today for the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. For Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024, I've been your reader, Mary Frances right here on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind and print handicapped.
1: In Africa, five-year-old true has no choice. She and millions like her must walk miles every day for dirty water. But together, we can end their walk by providing clean water close by. Instead of spending hours walking to get water that makes them sick, girls can be in a classroom that expands their minds and moms will gain back time to care for their families. Sons and daughters can grow up strong finally free of sicknesses caused by dirty water. At World Vision, care about clean water runs deep, deep enough to reach one new person with clean water every 10 seconds. Because every child, every person, everywhere, deserves clean water and the chance to rise to their full potential. It's true, when you just add water, you change a life. Learn more at worldvision.org.